Oh, uh, yeah. A little bit of Scott Booby and the Epitones. We play that every time we talk Batman here on The Long Road to Ruin. And, of course, this is The Long Road to Ruin. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and, frankly, I'm mortified at Blog Talk Radio, Mr. Mark Radelich. We've got a great show for you lined up tonight. Unfortunately, Sean Comer, my co-host, is still on hiatus. He's out uh, seeking the life fantastic, trying to find the meaning of life and all of that. He is uh, going far and wide in his search for this and that. But that doesn't mean there's no show. The show must go on, as they say. And I've got a stellar lineup of, it's like the Rush Limbaugh show. Rush Limbaugh goes away, he brings on like a whole host of people to host his show. And no cast of characters would be complete without the former voice of 411 Mania's MMA Zone. He is the co-host of the Leave the Memories Alone podcast with the one and only master of the man cave himself, Jeremy Lambert, on the Zonka Broadcasting Network. He is Samarkati88 on Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, he is here to drink your beer. Mr. Jazz Voice himself, smooth as butter, Mr. Samarkati. How do you do, sir? I'm doing terrific. Aside of the fact that I'm in Lebanon, it's currently 4 a.m., so I won't be drinking any beer. But other than that, I am doing quite well. It's honestly always a pleasure to be back on your podcast. This is what all started. Well, not on the long road to win, but you know what I mean. And, uh, yeah, it's it's always great to do anything associated with, um, or remotely associated with 401 at this point, given that I've been pretty much doing nothing for the past nine months as far as writing um, and only producing podcasts. So, hey, and this has been a long time in the making. I mean, I remember we first talked about this like a year and a half ago when you and I and Sean did the, um, what was it, the Batman, uh, the previous Batman trilogy with uh, Joel Schumacher, the crappy Batman movies, basically. That's right. I made an overture to you um, about being on the show and said, hey, we're going to do Batman. Didn't specify which Batman, just said Batman. And you, uh, I think, had assumed at the time we were doing the Dark Knight trilogy, which is tonight's topic. Yeah. And so we're like, no, 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 we're doing Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher, and you're like, eh, I still like that, man. <laughs> yeah, so sure. on your game. <laughs> Not exactly as exciting, but, I mean, th- the thing about that was we all liked the first uh, Tim Burton Batman movie, and then everything went downhill. But in a way, you know, getting to all the way to the glory of Joel, Joel Schumacher and the further glory of Batman and Robin, it's, you know, everybody likes a train wreck, so that was truly enjoyable, but it's good to be back and talk about movies that are actually, you know, good. Yeah, um, let, let's get into this, and, and I do, as I, as I do uh, with all of my guests, I always like to know what, what brings them to the subject matter. Uh, as I said, tonight we are looking at the Chris Nolan, David Goyer, uh, gritty realism interpretation of the Batman uh, saga, the Dark Knight trilogy, as it's been called. Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I've been aching to do this is uh, The Dark Knight's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's up there with Star Wars and The Lord of the Rings, and um, I, I just absolutely, it transcends the comic book movie, and, I, and I've been aching to talk about it. But Besides The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises 
needs a lot of uh, of criticism and conversation, and I've been wanting to do that now for a while. So we'll have an opportunity. Uh, we'll definitely have an opportunity to do that later on in the show as we go in chronological order. Um, but uh, you know, as we said initially, uh, maybe overture to you, and you were excited to talk about it. What exactly? Now, you know, we talked on the first show, which if, if people are enjoying Sam Mercati tonight and want to hear more of him on the show, you can go back and find uh, our two-part Batman episode uh, in the archives from last year on blogtalkradio.com uh, or on iTunes or Stitcher. In any case, um, what is it about the Dark Knight trilogy that, uh, that got you all excited and made you want to come talk about it for a few hours with me? Right, it's actually interesting. You know, I'm not going to repeat the whole story about how I became a Batman fan that, you know, as you mentioned, people can can go back and listen to those episodes. But basically, I I was a Batman fan. However, the Joel Schumacher films really soured me over not necessarily Batman, but superhero movies in general. So it's kind of funny when, when Batman Begins was first released, you know, I saw the trailers. I got cautiously excited, if if that's the way to put it. I didn't want to get my hopes high. My problem back then was I was unfamiliar with Chris Nolan. Granted, even back then, he hadn't gotten the accolades that he went on to receive throughout his career. But, I mean... Keep in mind, I hadn't seen any of, I hadn't seen Memento, I hadn't seen any of his actual classics, even leading up to Batman Begins. So, for me, seeing that a film was directed by Chris Nolan meant nothing to me back then. Uh, little did I know he'd go on to become my favorite director, but that's a whole different topic. Um, so, really, I was excited, but not really to the point where I was like, oh my god, I gotta go watch this on release day. And I didn't. And what's funny is, the movie stopped being shown in theaters, and I still hadn't gone on and watched it. So a friend mentioned it to me, like, you know, you know that, that Batman interpretation was great, really, you know, puts back Batman on the map, does him a lot of justice after all the atrocities that, you know, he's been uh, <laughs> unfairly treated to. And I basically waited for it to be released on DVD and saw it, and again, I was not really I didn't allow myself to be excited basically but you know expectations matter and when you go in with low expectations and the movie turns out to be as good as it was I mean never mind the fact that Batman Begins is a great film period but when you go in with low expectations it completely blew me away and that's kind of how it it, it all happened and then obviously after that I just had to watch The Dark Knight and then Dark Knight Rises. But that's kind of how it started. I actually wasn't that excited for the film, or at least, you know, not as excited as should have been, as I should have been as, as a huge Batman fan. But um, it, it when I watched it, it brought back a lot to me of the memories I had as a kid watching Batman the Animated Series, for example, or, you know, uh, Mask of the Phantasm, which I mentioned when we did the previous podcast. It's, it's really... that That movie was what got me, that animated movie was what got me into Batman, or at least turned me into this huge Batman nut that I am right now. So, Batman Begins kind of, even though you know, it's not animated, it's different, and in many ways, it was a throwback, for me personally, at least that's how I felt watching it, it was a throwback to those, so that's kind of why I got all excited about the trilogy, and I was thrilled to learn that, you know, uh, a sequel was uh, in, in works. 
it's funny. Your story of how you came to the Nolan trilogy is uh, um, is actually, in many ways, the story of how this film came to be. Uh, Warner Brothers has this property, and it uh, it goes into the ditch, uh, driven by Joel Schumacher, who has since apologized for Batman and Robin. Uh, essentially, Warner Brothers sort of asked him to make a kitty-friendly Batman movie, and he did, and it sucked, and everyone sort of sat back and realized they've possibly irrevocably damaged this property. So uh, Batman 5 was shelved. They took a step back and said, you know, let's, um, let's try to revive this thing, bring on some new talent, and see if we can repair the damage that we've done by trying to make a kiddie-friendly Batman movie. So they brought in um, Chris Nolan, they brought in David Goyer, who are both familiar with the comic books, and what they weren't familiar with, they became familiar with. And they decided that they were going to do two things. One, they were going to honor the source material in a way that... uh, They were going to honor the source material in a way that made sense for the fans of the property. You know, they wanted to at least acknowledge it, use it, uh, use what was there and, and what made sense for them, um, and obviously they would you know, put back on the shelf what didn't make sense. The other thing they wanted to do was they wanted to experiment with a Batman in the real world kind of a thing. You know, what would this look like if you took uh, magic out of the universe and just treated Batman as if this was a real thing? And so you got the gritty realism version of Batman with Batman uh, Begins. You also got, as, as best I can tell, a... Um, and at least an inspired by cinematic telling of Batman Year One, the graphic novel, which deals with uh, how Bruce Wayne trained to become Batman and, uh, you know, the elements that kind of came together to forge the Dark Knight, as he is called. And that's what the movie is about. Um, the movie you know, goes into uh, the death of Bruce Wayne's parents, him falling in the well, being attacked by, you know, a, a score of frightened bats. Um, the, uh, the fact that Gotham is overwhelmed with um, mafiosa uh, crime bosses that are just tearing the city down. Uh, the Gotham police force is corrupted and overwhelmed and bought and, bought and paid for by the uh, crime syndicate families. It's, you know, it, it's Gotham without hope. And that is the world that young Bruce Wayne is sort of dealing with um, in this movie. And so out of wanting to seek revenge for his parents and uh, you know, feeling like he needed to do something about the state of Gotham, Batman, uh, uh, Bruce Wayne rather, kind of goes away for a while. Um, and he ends up being trained by the League of Shadows. He meets Ra's al Ghul. Um, comes back to Gotham, decides that he needed to be a symbol. Uh, if you ever read Year One, one of the one of the panels in the comic book uh, shows him, you know, saying the, the immortal words, "Criminals are a cowardly lot." You know, and this whole idea of he needed to be something otherworldly in order to inspire fear. Fear was the only thing that was going to get through, and you know, cut through all the muck and mire. So he dons the cape and cowl, and he becomes a sort of creature of the night. And, and that, in essence, is the setup to Batman Begins. Um, this has faced some degree of criticism, and I want to get your opinion of this. 
Uh, I described, you know, about half the plot. We can get into the other half of the plot in a little bit. But base, grounding Batman Begins and, and Batman the Property in realism and sort of taking the fantasy out of it, uh, it, it rubs some people the wrong way. What, what did you think of it? What did you think of this version of Batman uh, in as far as what we see in the first half of Batman Begins? To me, that's... Listen, everything, generally speaking, most things are a product of their time and a product of context. This was always going to be compared to the Joel Schumacher trilogy, or if not compared, you know, assessed with reference to the Joel uh, Schumacher Batman movies, the Tim Burton Batman movies. And I felt that for what it was back then, it was the change of pace Batman needed or Batman movies needed because it, it was tarnished so much, especially with Batman and Robin, that really for a while you thought there was no coming back. Like that's that at least for a while. So, to be able to recover relatively quickly from such a disaster, I felt it needed a radical change, or at least in hindsight looking at, at it, I, I see why it worked. It needed a radical change. It was fresh. And to me, it worked perfectly. I mean, this is honestly, this is strictly my preference. I understand why you know fans of the comics would be upset with that change. However... To me, part of the reason why I was in, why I got into Batman to begin with was even as a kid, even you know, this supposedly you know we associate superheroes with cartoony characters. There was always something that felt gritty about Batman, even in the comics, even in the animated series. There was something a bit more. I don't want to say realistic because at the end of the day we are talking about superheroes. It is a guy dressed as a bat, so you know. Relatively realistic uh, is probably a better way to put it. So to me, that's what what that's the appeal I found in Batman. So to see that translate times ten, if you will, into a movie, for me personally, it was perfect, or at least close to being perfect. That's why I personally enjoy it. Again, I I still see people's point of view who didn't enjoy it, but at the end of the day, it was so well executed that you have to be an extremely harsh critic to be upset with it. It's fine sure. if, or it, like, if at the first, within like the first couple of, say, half an hour, not within the first half an hour of the movie, you're kind of uneasy watching this. But in the end, there's no way you should, you know, finish the movie and still go like, huh, you know, that was way too gritty. To me, that's why it worked. There was a sense of like almost creepiness um, the sense of realism, the emotions, I don't think it would have been portrayed or displayed as effectively had it been anything else or done any people, other way. People really hated, not Morgan Freeman's performance as Lucius Fox. I think people were fine with that. They hated the fact that Batman's armory comes from, uh, in, in the movie, there's an entire... Uh, section of Wayne Enterprises called Applied Physics, which is essentially their R&D department of mothball projects. And like, oh, the bat, instead of the Batmobile being, you know, like this really cool car that kind of comes from out of nowhere, it's a tank. <laughs> you know, it's a re- right. It was a retired, uh, you know, mothballed 
uh, tank that never made it into production. Stuff like that drove people insane. Um, and and the sense I'm getting from you is that didn't bother you. I personally love that. I I love the fact that everything had uh, a point of origin. You know, they they went as far as to, you know, talking about Batman's outfit um, and saying things like, uh, oh, there's a problem, you know, and he bangs the, uh, the, Michael Caine bangs the cowl on the the table and it cracks and he goes, there's a problem with the graphite, sir. We're going to need to order more of these. (laughs) You know, things like that. You know, that there was a lot of attention to detail and where things were, were coming from with Batman Begins. And I think part of the problem is there's a segment of our population that just wants to see Batman hit stuff. You know, it's, it's sort of a misinterpretation of the character, uh, if that's all you want him to do. Um, one of the things that I thought they captured very well in the first Batman movie, and progressively this gets worse over time by the time we get to Dark Knight Rises, is that one of the great things about Batman is his intellect. You know, have you ever watched the old uh, uh, Warner Brothers Justice League cartoon? You have yeah, all these sure. great super-powered beings, you know, um, John Stewart's Green Lantern, Superman, Wonder Woman, people that could wreck the planet three times over. But Batman's the smartest one of them all, and they all sort of take a step back because what Batman brought, brought to the Justice League was his intellect, his, his ability to figure things out and, and be the detective um, that he was. And that's sort of a forgotten element of his character that they made a point to bring back in this one, that he isn't just a ninja. You know, he isn't just a guy hanging out in dark alleys, uh, growling at people and, you know, and hitting them with ninja stars that are shaped like bats. He's a detective. He figures things out. He, you know, he cuts through the muck and mire. It's also one of the things that made his pairing with the Joker uh, both in the comic and in the movie so interesting was it, it came down to a battle of wits. And as, I, and as I said, one of my one of the things I thought was funny about The Dark Knight was that Keith Ledger's Joker had uh, Batman, you know, this great intellectual detective devolving into a guy just punching stuff. You know, they drove him so crazy. Uh, but that was the brilliance of the Joker. But we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Um, what did you think of their of their ability to sort of balance the uh, I just want to hit stuff, Batman, with the detective Batman that often gets forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it on many levels. Just quickly to piggyback on what you were talking about earlier, um, it's not that I, it didn't bother me. Like you, I absolutely loved it. Because to me, if you're going to make this realistic, you know, again, quote-unquote realistic version of Batman and put it in a, again, realistic world, you do have to explain everything because, well, I mean, where the hell would he get that car? If you, if you're, I mean, okay, it's not the Batmobile that everybody was kind of anticipating, but again, it, it made perfect sense to to explain where he's getting his armor, how he's getting that huge ass car, and yeah, make it more modernized. To me, that's kind of what what this version of Batman is, the Nolan trilogy. It's a more modernized version of Batman in general. But at the same time, even though it changed the feel in terms of, oh, it's less cartoony, it's more gritty, I feel it went back to the essence 
And case in point, the fact that Batman is not just, you know, this mindless brawler. He is intelligent. He is the world's greatest detective. So in many ways, it all really links up. So I personally loved this version of not just Batman, but Bruce Wayne in general. I guess we'll talk about that uh, in a moment. And the way Christian Bale portrayed him. But as far as what you were talking about, as far as Batman being intellectual, it really shows not just when he's in character as Batman, even when he's having his conversations with you know normal people. You say um, it really devolved as the series progressed. I agree that it, it devolved in Dark Knight Rises, but I, I felt it peaked in the Dark Knight, actually, you know, showing Bruce Wayne's or, or his intellect or Batman's intellect as a detective. Uh, though you did allude to how that created the, the great dynamic with uh, Heath Ledger's Joker. So, to me, yeah, that's, that's really part of the appeal, not part of what made it all work, because honestly, yeah, the fight scenes were great and all, but on some levels, they were the least interesting. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not that they weren't interesting. It's that everything else was that, that brilliant. to where the fi- Because the fight scenes are expected, right? They, they were sure. great, again. Don't get me wrong. But you do expect to see Batman kick ass. And it's extremely well done. But what, what, what makes this film work 10 years later, 9 years later, and what, what is it? it's going to make it work 20 years from now, is the fact that there's this, I want to say unique portrayal of Batman, but it's not meant to be, it's not supposed to be unique because that's Batman. He is intelligent. He is intellectual. So it's, it's really good to see him, to see Nolan actually go back to those roots. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more with your take. Let's talk a little bit about performances and villains here. I'll start with the villains. We have, uh, we, we ostensibly have three villains in this movie. And let me set this up by saying they really took a risk um, in terms of, I mean, this was not an indie film. You know, this was not something that you were going to sneak into the theater, you know, on a dark and dreary February. Um, you know, for, for some people to go check out. This is this was a, a summer blockbuster. It was released in June of 2005. This was meant to make money. And so, if you're a studio executive at Warner Brothers and someone's pitching you a Batman movie. You go, and so the villain is the Joker, right? Or maybe the Riddler, you know, someone everyone knows from the 60s Batman show. Nope, we're going to go with Falcone, the mob boss, Ra's al Ghul, and Scarecrow. And I'm, I'm going to assume executives at Warner Brothers went, Brack! you know, like, who the fuck are these people? So, um, I mean, let, let's face it, the, the mob boss stuff... Um, and this is, and if it, I'm, I'm going to float around a little bit here, but if anyone has an opportunity to read The Long Halloween, it's the story of how Harvey Dent becomes Two-Face. And without going into a tremendous amount of detail, there's a panel towards the end. And actually, Heath Ledger's Joker uh, alludes to this in, in, in a way in The Dark, in the dark Knight. Um, in The Dark Knight, uh, the Joker says, you know, kill you, Batman. I don't want to kill you. I need you. Without you, what am I going to do? Go back to ripping off mob bosses? You know, um, and in the, the Long Halloween, there's a line of, Gotham needs a, uh, a new breed of criminal. Because, all the, you know, the mob bosses have been pretty much taken down, and, they, and they've been replaced by this cavalcade of colorfully in, insane villains. 
so the, it's a two-page panel um, of all of like Batman's rogues gallery, from Poison Ivy to the Joker to Riddler to the you know to lesser characters like Mothman and the Mad Hatter, and it's awesome. Um, but you you know that if you're a comic book fan. If you're, if you're just a casual fan, you don't necessarily know of all of these other characters. So what I'm getting at here is they took a giant risk in keeping the three villains, the mob, Ra's al Ghul, who no one knew who the fuck he was, and Scarecrow, who barely anyone knew. Um, just get, I want to get your thoughts on that, and then we'll, we'll jump into some of the performances here. What did you think of that take on it, to stay away from the bigger named villains and stick with these sort of lesser known ones. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. To be honest, I never actually thought of that. To me, I always enjoyed it because me personally, I always loved Ra's al Ghul and Scarecrow. So they were both among my favorite Batman villains. But you're right. You and I, people like us, are not, we don't represent, you know, the majority of the audience because we are Batman nuts. So we do know all about the Batman universe. Uh, that certainly doesn't apply to most people, and you're right. Because, let's face it, even if you've never read a Batman comic in your life, when you hear Batman, you hear the Joker. That's kind of how it works. So, when you hear about a franchise being, not rebooted, but started restarting from scratch, uh, you would assume, especially in, in a film called Batman Begins, telling you know the early days of Batman and how he rose into prominence in Gotham, you'd expect that his main nemesis would be the joker uh yeah to me it it worked perfectly in hindsight you can see that it worked because as a trilogy once you look at the trilogy on the whole it made perfect sense for the joker to be in the middle because he was facing you know a more mature more confident batman you know bane was facing the broken down older kind of emotionally emotionally and physically broken down Batman. And here in Batman Begins, it was the raw Batman who's still, you know, kind of green. So when, when you put the whole trilogy together, it makes sense. But of course, going back to 2005, you needed that film to work to have any chance of actually, you know, reaching the trilogy. So it was a huge risk. I felt it worked. I actually... Whenever we, I look back at the Nolan trilogy, yeah, obviously the villain that stands out most is the Joker, but I always felt that Carecrow in particular was actually quite underrated. Uh, I personally have a soft spot for Ra's al Ghul, so I'm kind of biased about that, and I have a soft spot for Liam Neeson, so it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm quite biased uh, in my take on that <laughs> topic. But it... it it made sense not to have Batman's first real uh, villain. Talking about Scarecrow here before I get to Ra's al Ghul. It made sense for him to be Scarecrow because fear is one of the main themes of the movie. You know, um, kind of spreading fear uh, in the hearts of, well, at least, you know, Bruce Wayne talks about spreading fears in the hearts of criminals. So Scarecrow is a, is a nice... I don't want to say contrast, because not really. He is spreading fears, too, but, you know, in the hearts of innocence. So that's kind of, within the theme of the movie, it made perfect sense. Uh, As far as Ra's al Ghul, because, you know, 
they've played they played it back to Batman's days with the League of the Shadows, uh, him being trained at the hands of Ra's al Ghul. Uh, plus, you know, the whole twist in the end. I personally thought the execu- again one of the one what part of what makes this trilogy work so well is everything was ex well I don't want to say everything but at least in the first two movies most of it was executed very very well just in terms of pacing in terms of story and everything so even if you you you're disappointed as a viewer in 2005 you're disappointed not to see the Joker it's hard not to be taken with what you're seeing and. The performances are so good that it doesn't really matter. I mean, even uh, Falcone, the the scene with uh, with a young Bruce Wayne when he confronted him at the restaurant or a nightclub or whatever it was, that was such a good. I mean, when he taunted him about you know uh, his love interest, his parents, and all that, you couldn't help but going, "What a dick!" Like I, I wanted that guy <laughs> to get his ass kicked. So. Even though you know Falcone's role in the end was obviously not that big, but he served his purpose the same way Scarecrow served his purpose, and you know obviously with the with the twist at the end with Ra's al Ghul. So I personally had no problem with it. Yeah, I think, um, and for anyone else that decides to go ahead and retell the Batman story, the mob is just as big a part as the development of Batman as any one of his colorful villains, uh, and I'm glad that. Through Falcone, the mob got it to do. Um, they, they, they had a good character to play off of because it's really the mob that inspires Batman, Bruce Wayne to become Batman. Um, it was the mob that had corrupted the city. The problem was, and, and I'm going to talk a, more at length of this when we get there, uh, Alfred's line in The Dark Knight about uh, you push the mob so far that they turn to a man who didn't fully understand him, the Joker. That's, that's the legacy of Batman. You know, a lot of his villains have, have, have brought that to bear. You know, is Gotham better off because of you? Maybe, maybe not. You, in, in many ways, you made it worse because you created all of these. If there's no Batman, there's no Two-Face. There may never have been a Joker. You know, a lot of these characters, and, and they all say that to Batman at one point or another, and then the comic book and to a degree in the movie, you created many of us. And you created a world where we could flourish by eliminating the mob. And I love that about the Batman universe. That, you know, he, this, isn't, this isn't Superman saving the universe from otherworldly entities like Darkseid. This is, you know, this is a complex character. A guy who is wrestling with the idea of, am I doing good? You know, is my is my uh, desire for re- for avenging my parents and trying to save my city actually accomplishing its goal? And on the face of it, sure, he's you know uh, he's got the criminals running scared, but then he creates this uh, universe full of horrible monsters that are far worse than the mob ever was, and and that is one of the great tragedies of Batman. Um, let's talk a little bit about performances here. Uh, Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne and Batman. Uh, I think historically, uh, when, when I've talked about this with people, I said I thought he did a good job as Batman, um, at least for the first two films. Um, I, don't, I wasn't sure if I was sold on him as Bruce Wayne. I think after watching it again uh, recently, in pre- preparation for this podcast, I've softened to it. Um, 
I think my, my one hesitation with Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne is Bruce Wayne, because he's got to play such a, a character that's different from Batman, is so much more fun and lighthearted in public. And I think they tried to do that, but, Christ, but it, it, I think Christian Bale doesn't necessarily embody a character that is, you know, full of exuberance. And I, I, I wish... Um, I just wanted a little bit more uh, of that, you know, eccentric Bruce Wayne, billionaire playboy. Um, that, and I didn't necessarily get enough of that from Christian Bale. When he was when he was Batman, he was fine, and when he was Bruce Wayne, the detective, he was fine. But eccentric billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne, uh, he seemed a little too dour to me. What What was your thought about Christian Bale? I'd agree with that, but I also think, in a way, it's. It's not just Christian Bale's performance that didn't really portray that side of Bruce Wayne. It's more Nolan's vision, too, because with Batman Begins, he's he's wrestling with this guilt, you know, having watched his parents die. There's a sense of insecurity about everything he's doing. You just mentioned that, not just in Batman Begins, just Batman in general, going back to the comics. There's a sense of insecurity with Batman, you know, whether... Am I doing the right thing? Have I avenged my parents' death? Am I really saving people? You know, am I making the city better? I think Bruce Wayne, in a way, in, in the first Batman, he never really got to that point. Whether you know he's making the city better yet, this is more revealed in the later uh, in the next two films. But as far as it was, it was mainly about the guilt about his parents' death. So already, that's kind of a very dark tone and the entire movie had that so it was difficult it was kind of difficult for him to portray that other side there was that scene and you're right there was that scene uh when he's you know dance uh, not when he's swimming at uh, well it's not really a pool but that pool of the hotel with the two uh, models you're right, right. That, i i had a hard time buying that when he was doing it. it it felt to me while watching it it almost felt out of place even though not really because that is kind of what Bruce Wayne is. But seeing Christian Bale doing that, I didn't really think... it wasn't. I couldn't buy it as much as every other thing he did. To me, when he was the serious Bruce Wayne, not just the detective Bruce Wayne, but the emotional, you know, I'm, I'm, my parents died and I'm feeling so guilty, Bruce Wayne, he, he nailed that. Um, the more, you know, eccentric billionaire... In fact, it's funny you mentioned that. In the third film, when he was dancing with uh, Selena Kyle, and, he, and she asked him, you know, who are you pretending to be? And he's like, um, you know, Bruce Wayne, eccentric billionaire. One of my main first thoughts was, well, we haven't really seen a whole lot of that. I mean, why eccentric? Right. Because within the context of the... If, if you didn't know anything about Batman, if you just watched these three movies... My first question would be, why eccentric? I didn't see much of that in Bruce Wayne so in the movies. I saw smarmy. You know, like, well, you know, like there's, there's new rules in this hotel because I'm buying it. And he's just dripping with smarminess. Like, yeah. You're not eccentric. You're smarmy. You're, you're being a dick. You know? Exactly. <laughs> he's being an arrogant asshole in a way. Sure, but not necessarily eccentric. I agree with that. That entire scene kind of failed because... I want to get to that in a moment. You know, Katie Holmes' performance in the entire film was not great either. So that last bit of, you know, that last bit of the scene where 
Bruce Wayne encounters her for the first time since returning, or I don't, yeah, it is the first time since returning, um, and that sudden change in his attitude, it didn't really work. To me, that, that scene from beginning to end felt a bit awkward. Right. Yeah, it um, it was too. It was forced. It felt very forced. It felt very unnatural, um, and it, it almost takes you out of the movie. And it's like if I could go back and talk to them, it's just like, look, if you want to make him eccentric, you have to rewrite this scene because he's not eccentric at all. He's <laughs> not coming across. Um, you you actually hit upon the next point of uh, contention, actually, and that is Katie Holmes' performance. Uh, universally hated. I don't think anyone liked Katie Holmes in this movie. I thought she was fine. My problem wasn't with Katie Holmes itself, my, my, not even her performance or her character or anything else like that. My problem with the, uh, the character of Rachel is, um, if I can just do a quick aside, there's been a lot of criticism leveled at superhero movies lately, the latest one being The Amazing Spider-Man 2, where your heroes are way too hung up on love interests. It drove me nuts with Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. It's driving a lot of other people nuts with Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. Um, Tony Stark is way too caught up on uh, Pepper Potts. Uh, you're seeing this in a, lot of, in a lot of superhero movies where there seems to be this belief in Hollywood that they're all doing it for the girls. They're doing it for love. And there's nothing else driving any of these people to do what it is that they do in the realm of, uh, of uh, the superhero universe. And my major criticism of the Dark Knight trilogy is the belief by David Goyer and Christopher Nolan that Batman gave any kind of a shit about anybody involved in his love life. He, you know, he was, he was haunted by what happened to Harvey Dent. He was haunted by what happened to Jason Todd. Um, he, he, he was somewhat, uh, he felt somewhat betrayed when um, Dick Grayson went on to become Nightwing. You know, th- these were things that sort of caused him to have some, um, you know, emotional uh, negative feelings about himself and about w- what he was doing in terms of relationships that he had built. This thing uh, that he's hung up on Rachel for three movies, and, and we'll talk a lot about this with The Dark Knight Rises, drove me nuts. I, it's just not, I mean, may, maybe you disagree, but it just, I never saw Batman as being driven or hung up on any woman, ever, under any circumstances. Yeah, actually, no, I do agree. Case in point, here's the thing. Not only it was uncharacteristic for Batman. Again, to me, I'm not. I'm not always so hung up on the source material. I can mm-hmm. tolerate not being true to the source material if it makes sense within the context of your vision. If you have a certain vision for something and that's the way you're trying to make it work, go for it. The problem is. The Rachel character in general was not that interesting. It was hard to kind of root for them to be together. It was hard to have any sort of emotional uh, investment in her for me. And as I was watching, it was hard for me to believe that he had any sort of emotional investment in her, which resulted in nobody giving a shit that she died in the dark night. That we will get to that later, but I haven't seen a single person who watched that movie who was like, 
oh my god, like, we were all relieved it wasn't Harvey Dent. Let's be honest. I mean, we'll get <laughs> no, to that in a moment. Rachel. No, Nobody... not Rachel. It was, it yeah, was really was like, supposed to be. Yeah, like, who cares? You know, let me, I want you to continue, but let me, let me cut in with this. The, pr- the problem is, and I absolutely agree, I, and whenever I talk about these movies, um, I always say throw the source material out unless you're just drawing upon it for a reference to make a point, because movies are movies, and books are books, comic books are comic books. You, you, you can't, if you do that, you're never going to like anything, you know, unless it's like a strict shot-for-shot interpretation, you know, like Family Guy does Star Wars or something like that. Um, so, I'm, so I'm okay with that. But my problem is, is that they couldn't make up their mind. He's driven by needing to avenge his family, the death of his family, and save the city from falling into hell. At what point was he doing it for Rachel? And that's the thing. It was like, they, it was like somewhere along the line, they lost the thread of what was driving ba- uh, Bruce Wayne to do what he was doing and decided, oh, he's also doing it so that Gotham is safe enough for him to settle down with a woman. No, 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 no. That's not what you told me in the first film. And so by the end of Batman Begins, when she walks away from him, you know, and then he spends the second film pining for her and the third film mourning her, I'm like, wait a minute. What happened to all the other things that were driving him to save Gotham? Did he suddenly stop caring about those things? That's what I'm on about. Now, I agree. There was a sense watching the first film that... From the moment he actually met her again after getting back to Gotham, suddenly, to me, the main driving force behind his actions seemed to be that he was trying to prove himself to her rather than actually, you know, avenge his parents' death or make the city a safer place or getting back at criminals for, you know, the trauma he suffered as a child or, you know, maintaining his father's legacy. Things that the film began with those were the main themes initially or at least that's what we were led to believe sure i mean we we saw glimpses of their friendship you know that playing as children whatever okay we knew that this was you know going to play a role um the deeper we go into the film but it seemed suddenly you know with with the final scene when he was rebuilding his home or at least working on it and she comes and visits him and tell him you know, that they can't be together. I looked at uh, me personally, I was like, okay, so what? We didn't even see you together yet, and we, we don't even know what kind of relationship you, you have. It's, it's sort of weird. I think the whole thing was a bit, not confusing, but confused, if that makes any sense. Be- because confusing might imply that they actually knew what they wanted exactly but kind of failed to portray it watching it i feel like they actually didn't know what they wanted exactly with this whole bit it comes across as tacked on it comes across as like they had a finished product that didn't have him so hung up on rachel and warner brothers went back to them and i don't know if this is true or not but it's just this is what it seems like Um, Because I could also see executives doing this. Warner Brothers kind of looking at the finished script and going, where's the love interest? And then having to configure a love interest out of Rachel where none existed. And and again, as the the trilogy progresses, and we need to start moving into the Dark Knight now, um, it, it becomes less about the mission and more about Rachel, and I hated that. It is the one thing about, about the Dark Knight trilogy 
that I absolutely cannot stand. It, it, it's and it's not and it's not Katie Holmes's fault. I mean, I get no one no one thought her performance was great. Um, I thought she was just I I I'll say this and it all, and it's almost a compliment. She was there. She was serviceable. I I didn't think she was bad. Um, she was just there, and yeah, I'm okay with she that. She was bad either. I don't. I think it's a combination of the character, Katie right. Holmes being a bit, you know, not that interesting. The fact that and the fact that nobody wanted the character there to begin with. So a, you have the fact that nobody wanted the character there to begin with. B, you have the fact that Katie Holmes, you know, she's not untalented or anything, but she's she's whatever. She's there. I think she also and, suffered from the fact that she was associated with Tom Cruise at the time, and people thought she was nuts. And people tend to let that bleed into their their uh, interpretation of someone's performance. It was like, well, we hate you in real life, so nothing you do is good. And, and I'm not going to hold that against her. And C, the character itself, the way it's written, it's not that interesting. I mean, she's, at times she's kind of condescending and kind right. of on a high horse. So when she bitch slaps him and all these moralities, like, all right, Sure, I mean, we get it, but in a way it's kind of distracting too because suddenly she becomes, you know, the thing that the element that's keeping him on track and that's also annoying. Right. So it's like she was set up to fail, basically. Now yeah. granted her performance was not great. It wasn't bad either. Though and if you give me a character like that, I don't see how you can conjure up a great performance out of that anyway, no matter how good of an actor yeah. you are. You can do a better job, perhaps, but nothing spectacular, I don't think. Before we before we move on, and there's a, there's so much to talk about, but we've we've only got a limited amount of time here, and I want to at least start talking about the Dark Knight Rises before we have to go into overtime. Um, so I'm sure at some point Samer wants to go to sleep. So um, I, I just I have to address this because it's one of those things where I mean everybody else's performance in the movie is awesome. And they're consistently good performances through the movie. So they almost don't want to bring them up um, other than say they were great. My only, uh, my only caveat with that is Michael Caine as Alfred. Because Alfred starts off as, first of all, vastly different portrayal of Alfred than anything in the comic books. Okay, fine, I've said it. Now we can move on from that. Um, my problem with Michael Caine is he starts off as sort of a fatherly figure, in this movie, and he's fine in Batman Begins. By the time we get to the Dark Knight Rises, I'm with Bruce Wayne. Get the fuck out of my house. He becomes this nagging, <laughs> just a just hag of a, of a human being. You know, the, the burning the letter and, and the kind of, and just the constant, he, you know what he reminded me of? Alfred turned into Adrian from the Rocky movies. You can't do it, Rock! <laughs> Every movie? Why? You know, it's just, like, Alfred was so solidly behind Batman. Like, whatever he was thinking, it was always behind his eyes. To the point where Frank Miller wrote the character in a way that when he thought Batman and Bruce Wayne was dead, he threw himself off a fucking cliff. Michael Caine goes to France at the end of this trilogy because he's, he's like, oh, he's dead. And I guess, you know, and I've got lots of money now. I guess I'll go to that cafe I like to go to. Like, come on, man. <laughs> Like, not even close. It, it's, I mean, it, it is kind of odd. I guess we'll talk about that a bit when we get to the Dark, Dark Knight Rises. At times when he's actually 
disagreeing with Bruce Wayne's action or you know Batman's actions. My question is why? Your point makes no sense. I mean, oh, help the city with your resources and your knowledge. No, wait, what? Dude, you can't, this is such a bait and switch. It's like, oh, Master Wayne, please, you know, do, get off your ass. You've been in hiding for eight years. You know, go back to doing good for the city. But, oh, wait, no, I didn't mean it like that. I don't mean go back to being the character you've been for, you know, the past God knows how long. No, I meant use your money and resources. Like, come on, dude. And then the whole cry fest. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you there. I love Michael Caine as an actor. Um, I liked him in Batman Begins. I even liked him in Dark Knight. I didn't mind him in Dark Knight at all. Uh, because he still came off as giving advice as opposed, while being supportive as opposed to, no, I'm just going to oppose everything you're doing just for the sake right. of doing it. And then cry for no real reason. Yeah, he became but, such a nagging wife by the end of it that I was like, please, I'm so glad you're gone. <laughs> like, that was, that, they should have told Warner Brothers that the love interest is Alfred. That's, that would have been my thing. Joel Schroeder would have been directing the film, though. <laughs> True. All right, um, I'm going to let you uh, give the last word here on Batman Begins, and then we're going to slide on into the Dark Knight. Um... Nothing much to say other than it is a great. It was. I mean, obviously, when when we're criticizing bits and pieces, here we are nitpicking because generally, you're right. There's not much to say about you know the other performances because they were all good. The story was good. It was the beginning, no pun intended, that you know the trilogy needed, um, and it really set the tone for things to come. I love. I love the grittiness. I love the the feel of the entire the way they portrayed Gotham City the way even that scene where he initially busts out the drug deal and 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 captures Falcone uh it was were formally introduced to Batman or at least officially introduced to Batman it was so well done i really liked the the emotions the film portrayed as well um it worked on so many levels it's it's really you know it's a cliche to to say oh you know I I feel like this movie almost almost always gets uh, overlooked in this uh, in this series because obviously the Dark Knight is so wildly praised and Dark Knight Rises is probably the one people have most issues with so Batman Begins kind of gets just at least lost in the shuffle but I feel this is a bit unfair because. It's it's truly, truly enjoyable. It was the start the trilogy needed. And in some ways, it's it might be the least flaws of the trilogy. It, it, the, the least flawed, sorry. The least flawed movie of the trilogy. That doesn't necessarily make it the best. But, you know, we've talked about it for like, what, 40 minutes now. The issues we had with it were fairly minor. So I say for that alone, it's a huge success. Absolutely. So, The Dark Knight is the introduction of the Joker. We get a little bit of Scarecrow, but not much. I mean, our our main villain is is the Joker. Our secondary villain is uh, Harvey Dent's Two-Face. And uh, what The Dark Knight is, is um, sort of a combination of a retelling, perhaps, of the long Halloween and uh, elements of the killing joke. The killing joke, for people who don't know, is a graphic novel in which the Joker torments uh, Batman and Commissioner Gordon, um, and in the most one of the most you know, controversial parts of the Joker's history, he cripples via gunshot 
um, Barbara Gordon, who is Commissioner Gordon's daughter, uh, he shoots her, on to become and she is bat girl. Right, um, because right, she is the bat girl. Uh, she's crippled, and he and she is then sexually assaulted by the Joker and his gang, and then uh, they kidnap Commissioner Gordon, you know, put him in a funhouse, and show him pictures of his, you know, sexually assaulted, bleeding to death daughter. Um, and at you know, and at the end of it, there's a very famous uh, sort of fight scene between Batman and the Joker that ends with the two of them just laughing. And um, so there are elements of the killing joke in this, but it's mostly the long Halloween, you know, the 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 the, uh, the tale of Two Face, with uh, with some other elements from different uh, Batman stories thrown in as well. Um, I mean, it goes without saying that uh, Heath Ledger's Joker was pretty much perfect. Um, it, uh, it I, I mean, I have really no criticisms of it. Uh, the story is essentially Batman has driven the mob into a corner. Um, they hire the Joker to kill the Batman, and the Joker proceeds to terrorize Gotham City in order to get the Batman. Uh, along the way, Harvey Dent becomes sort of the White Knight of Gotham in that he's willing to stand and face the mob uh, face-to-face. And uh, Batman decides that you know, he's going to get fully behind Harvey Dent and, and maybe, just maybe, this will give him the out that he needs to be with Rachel for no good reason. Um, of course, of course uh, the Joker wants to tear down the best of them. Um, really, he wants, to, he wants to tear down all three of them and see, see what they'll do. And, uh, and that's pretty much the movie. Um, it transcends the comic book movie. This was, this was more than you know, a superhero dealing with a supervillain. There's a lot of complexities. Um, I think the only criticism in the plot is there were far too many coincidences. Uh, once, you get, once you get to the point where the Joker is caught by Batman and then you have you know, certain things happening, it's like, <laughs> you have, go, go ahead and watch everything wrong. Cin- Cinema Sins, everything wrong with The Dark Knight to know what I'm talking about here. They're just like, how, how could you have possibly planned all of that? Um, but, you know, as long as you're, you know, you're along for the ride, it is an incredible uh, operatic movie. It, um, if, if you never knew anything about comic books or the comic books didn't exist and someone just decided to write this movie, it stands on its own as probably one of the best I've ever seen in the action-adventure genre. Um, that being said, let's tear it apart. Um, let's spend a little bit of time actually uh, talking about you know certain things that uh, that whether we're t- talking about or that we're kind of wrong with it. Let me first say, and then I'll get your reaction to this: the introduction of the Joker via the mob bank robbery scene is spectacular. They shot in an IMAX, so it looks beautiful, and the whole concept of uh, them sort of who is the Joker and what's his deal and how, you know and how does why does he think he can sit out on this and you know and then each guy as they accomplish part of their mission gets shot in the back <laughs> you know and then that infamous exchange where it's like oh you know uh, I bet the Joker told you to kill me next huh <laughs> hit by a bus nope I killed a bus driver <laughs> it was perfect. It was it was a great way to introduce this psychotic evil mastermind. Um, I'm going to jump ahead here and say there's a scene later on where uh, he says to then Two Face, 
you know, I'm like a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught one. And it's, it's such an interesting line because on the one hand, he's depicted as this agent of chaos. However, he can't possibly be just an agent of chaos. There has to be some plan here, and there is. The plan is to bring down the best, uh, to bring down the heroes of Gotham. Uh, there's another line uh, in the movie where he says to he says to him, you know I wanted to says the Batman I wanted to see what you would do and you didn't disappoint you let five people die in order to catch me you know that's what makes the movie to me interesting he's not out to he, he's this isn't about money this wasn't about uh, destroying Gotham as such though he does a really good job of that this was about fucking with people. And what an interesting way to, to write a movie. Like, let's, let's write a movie where your main villain, his whole thing is to mess with guys and see what they'll do and just kind of sit back and watch and give you all of these opposing uh, thoughts about himself and points of view. You know, is he a dog chasing cars or is he really this complex mastermind setting up all of these traps for uh, a seemingly decent men. I'm going to go, I'm just going to let that hang there for a second and uh, let you chime in. First of all, I, I do want to comment on that opening scene. It really is among my favorite opening scenes of any film. It's sort of, it almost has a Sergio Leone inspiration to it. Obviously not nearly as long, but just that, you know, that kind of, grab you by the throat opening scene that really introduces you to a main character in the most badass way possible. There's no other way for me to put it. It was badass. Like, the, the reveal at the end where he takes off the mask and, you know, whatever doesn't kill you only makes you weirder or something like that. It, it, it's <laughs> truly amazing. And so is every single scene. I know it's sickly shit, but it really is. Every single scene the Joker appears in, it... They're probably the best scenes of the entire film. Um, I loved the way it's the the film was built around him this time around. You know, the first movie obviously is about Bruce Wayne and either his sorrow over his parents or his love for Rachel. Nobody knows. But the second one, at least, it, it, it's around the Joker and the way they created that paradox, that sort of like that contrast between this seemingly extremely random criminal yet so intricate so meticulous in his plans so the purpose is sort of chaotic and random or at least it's general in the sense that you know as alfred put it some people just want to see the world burn in some ways that's what he's doing but he's going on about it in an extremely intricate detailed way and you're right it does get a bit contrived as far as the execution goes you know how he's able to pull it off but for it to work, for the film to work, you, you got to let that slide. Or at least, sure. they, I mean, maybe we don't have to let it slide, but they had to do that in order, you know, we might call them out on it. But I don't see how it could have, I'm sure it could, but it made sense for them. I made things easier for them to, to kind of pull it took, off like that. It never, it never took me out of the movie. There were some no, movies where it gets so insane the things that they're doing and the and the um, 
the uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for here, but the oh, coincidental happenings in the movie are so are, are so ridiculous and so ham handed. They're like, and I'm like, no, I don't, you know, like the A team, you know, with uh, with your buddy in mind, yeah. Rampage Jackson. <laughs> There's a good example of of coincidences that are so mind-bogglingly stupid. I'm right out of the movie. I'm essentially watching a demo reel of special effects now. Um, you know, where this one, I'm willing to buy it. I'm willing yeah, to accept I, certain silly things. And I think it's a testament to both the Joker as a character, the way they wrote the Joker as a character, and Heath Ledger's performance, to where it's it's sort of believable, almost. You know, it's like, you know what, I'm willing to believe that he's able to do that. That that he was, you know, that those coincidences worked out so well for him. You know what I mean? It's sort of right. like, all right, he, he seems capable of doing that. Um, I loved every single line Joker uttered. And I want to touch on, on the dialogue later. Uh, but as far as the Joker goes, it, it was absolutely mind-blowing. It's funny because before I watched the film, everybody was talking about, oh, you know, Heath Ledger's performance, Heath Ledger's performance. And obviously there were those naysayers that were like, you know, it's because he died. You know, that, that sort of expected kind of predictable reply that, oh, if he hadn't died, people wouldn't have praised it that much. So I went in there expecting something great, but at the same time expecting like, oh, I might be disappointed because, yeah, what if he's getting you know, more praise than he's due, but not on the slightest. I honestly can't praise his performance enough. It was absolutely phenomenal. He he came off as creepy, chilling, at times almost funny, and at the same time, you know, kind of like that cool pro wrestling heel that he's you hate, but you love to hate. Sorry, not hate. You love to hate. That's sort of like... He did it all at once and complimented Batman great. And which, in a way, he... You know, you mentioned that earlier. I think he said, you know, why would I want to kill you? You complete me. That was the the word he used. And, you know, he completes them both. And the story and as far as performance goes, that interrogation scene was just absolutely phenomenal. He completely broke Batman down. And I love... There's something about Christopher Nolan. He always does this. He's great at stating the obvious in a not-so-obvious way. Unless it's Inception and it's really complicated and you need Alan Page to explain every single step of the way for you. But that's that's a different story. <laughs> but at least in, in this film, when when... Batman starts threatening him and just completely loses it. The Joker just laughs like a madman. Well, he is a madman. And goes, you have nothing on right. me. So it's like there's, and it's not there's the nothing Romero just with. laughing for the sake of laughing. It's, and, and I've and I got to say this and then let you finish your point. The, if someone were to say, sum up the Joker's plan in 50 words or less, in one byline that you can put on a newspaper... It was to, to see the inner truth of the triumvirate. He wanted to see what was, the, what was the true Batman, what was the true Harvey Dent, what was the true, to a lesser extent, Commissioner Gordon. Here were the three people standing up to the filth of Gotham, uh, pre- pre- uh, prescribing themselves to be you know, the knight saving the day. And he says, no, 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 I call bullshit. And with each one of you, I'm going to see what's really behind your masks. And he, and, he, and he does it in that scene with Batman. 
He does it by, you know, breaking down uh, Harvey Dent, who becomes Two-Face. They never really get to Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner, <laughs> Gary Oldman's Commissioner Gordon is forever befuddled throughout three movies. Um, <laughs> it's just, like, no, no clue. He's the only one who doesn't know who Batman is. He's just kind of wandering around. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll throw the Killing Joke graphic novel in there as part of it. And, and then he did that to Commissioner Gordon. But that's what he was doing. You know, that, that's what it was. That's what the movie was about. And you're absolutely right. When, he, when, he, when Batman just gets to the point where he's so agitated that he's just, this is what I mean by, at, what, at some point he stops being Batman and he's just punching things. And that scene, he broke down and just started punching the Joker. And the Joker's like, I don't care. Woo-hoo! <laughs> I because wait for you're one- an animal. You know, people make that joke like, oh, Batman has an answer for everything in his utility belt. But it's because, you know, oh, Batman would be able to figure something out, you know, or when you have that tired debate over Batman versus Superman, you know, Batman fanboys would say, oh, you know, he'll figure something out. He's Batman. He's a genius. But that's the one scene where Batman was completely at the Joker's mercy. If Joker hadn't told him what his plan was or where to go, and even then he tricked him, but... If he hadn't told him, there was literally nothing Batman can do, and you kind of feel that self of uh, that sense of helplessness in Batman's yeah. actions, what he was doing. So it w- it was terrific. It was the one time where Batman was just defeated. It's yeah. the Joker that that gave him that threw him a bone. Essentially, he was absolutely defeated. So it's it's absolutely great. Uh, there's plenty of symbolism as well. You you mentioned you know. Joker wants to call bullshit on, you know, people being good in general. That's sort of the point of the ending. Uh, you know, he stands for for evil, obviously. It's it's so black and white, but at the same time, it's done in a not so cliched, kind of watered down, tired, uh, redundant it's, manner. It's um, the George Carlin line. I don't know if you're familiar with comedian George Carlin, but he once said. Um, the last guy on earth will, will attack the mirror. You know, that we're, we're, so, we're so used to as human beings fighting each other that if you got rid, you know, that, you know, whites hating blacks, you know, Christians, Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he said that if you boil it down to one guy, standing, you know, the, the, the last man on earth will attack the mirror. That's essentially where Joker is coming from, that people are inherently bad. And that if you tear down certain societal pillars and frames, you will see them, you, you will see madness erupt and people will murder one another. Um, and then, you know, there's Batman's line about, no, people are inherently good. You just have to give them a fucking rope and, you know, and a, and a light to aim for. Yeah. And, and then, so you have them on opposite sides and then you have Two-Face as kind of, you know, the gray area because, well, you know, he is too, that's, that's the point of Two-Face. Um, and it, it all worked out. The, the dynamic the three of them had, every single scene they had with one another, was truly phenomenal. Um, you know, the, I think it's almost that scene at the hospital. I wouldn't call it underrated because it gets praised, but everybody talks about you know the investigation scene with Batman more than the Joker at the hospital with Two Face. But that's really that was the one moment where Joker actually kind of explains where he's coming from. When he's talking yeah. to Harvey Dent, and and kind of it goes back to what um, when Michael Caine told Batman earlier, you know, Alf, well Alfred told Batman, you know, when he told him perhaps you're dealing with a man you don't fully understand because 
nobody actually understood Joker until that scene. Mm-hmm. As viewers, we we never actually fully understood what was his motivation behind everything he's doing. And, uh, yeah, you said he, he actually never got to Gordon, but in a way he did. He shot him, or at least tried to. So he at least got to him physically. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's truly... Every, here's the thing, honestly. Everything involving the Joker in this film was virtually perfect. It's yep. not even hyperbole. No, it's it's not. This isn't and this isn't just, you know, fanboyism. When you talk about the complexities look, comic book movies don't have to be stupid. And neither do children's movies, just as an aside. And and that's why I think this movie gets universally praised. It stands alone. Um, as Steve Austin says, we're gonna take a pause for the cause and a swig of water for the working man. Um, I wanna take a quick moment here and bring on our title card artist, Mr. Benjamin J. Cologne, who asked for just a few minutes of time on the show. So I'm going to go ahead and grant him his few minutes to talk a little bit about The Dark Knight and The Joker, I'm sure. Benjamin, first of all, my family loved the title card. Absolutely brilliant work. Welcome to the show, my friend. Hello, Mark. Thank you. Uh, Hello, Samer. First time meeting you uh, verbally. How's it going? Going great, and I saw the title card, and I concur with Mark. It was fantastic. Yeah, I would have got you in if I actually if there actually existed a photograph of you on this planet. Um, <laughs> uh, only one person has one, uh, Jeremy Lambert. So, I'll, for, well, if I, if I ever appear here, I'll, again, I'll promise I'll send you one. You should have uh, driven no a scarecrow with a mask on and just put and, and just put picture not available. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, you laugh about that, but I actually did consider doing that. Well, maybe I should have. Okay, yeah, I'm, we got a, we, we got about forty-five minutes of live time left. What uh, what was your burning desire, Mister Benjamin? Just to, you know, like you guys, I, I you know, Dark Knight is one of my favorite movies of all time too. I, you know, it's one of the best experiences with a theater crowd I've ever had. Um, uh, I wanted to just throw some things out there that might, you know, that you guys could run with some things that I've talked about with, with friends and stuff about mainly theme related. First thing, um, because uh, maybe this, you know, today for those who are maybe may not be listening live later on, uh, this is recorded on September 11th. Maybe that's appropriate. I always figured, I always had this feeling that the Dark Knight actually was one of the first films that I had seen at the time that sort of sacrificed a lot of sacred cows in film that September 11th had created up to that point. Uh, as far as like, you know, you, this was the first movie since then that I had seen where like, you know, where the theme of terrorism is very explicit and mentioned by that particular word, um, buildings exploding, uh, you know, police officers and firefighters and, and, you know, rescue workers being killed indiscriminately. Uh, a lot of just raw, you know, things that, that, that people in movies were afraid to tackle. Uh, I, you know, at least that's what I had figured up until that point. Um, I'm not sure if anybody else picked up on that or if anybody else agrees, but that, that's one thing that I definitely noticed and noticed more over time. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to let Seymour comment on that, but just a real quick thing. I know when it came out, that was a big topic of conversation, uh, and, it, and it bugged people. I will tell you, um, somewhat related but possibly unrelated to this, my wife thought the movie, because of a lot of the explosions and such, and she wasn't even a New Yorker, 
but apparently 9-11 affected her to a degree, one degree or another. And she, she watched most of that movie from the, uh, the Harvey Dent car chase on pretty much nuzzled into my armpit. The movie was too intense for her to focus on directly. And she, and she just kind of, it was like a horror movie. She was buried into my shoulder uh, or on the phone or, or like on uh, texting her friend because she could you know, she was like, this was a bit much for me. But yeah, a lot of people commented on sort of the, the open embrace of terrorism uh, in the movie and, you know, the blowing up of the hospital and all of that. And, um, you know, did not exactly heap praise on the movie because of it. It was almost kind of a too soon reaction. I think, you know, in 2014, I go back and look at it, and I hardly remember uh, that this was a mere four years, uh, not four years, this was long after that, but this was, you know, not too long after uh, September 11th when, when, the, when the wound was still raw. But, um, Samer, your thoughts? I mean... I think at some point it has to be done. So in in a way, it's almost fitting that it is this movie. Because, well, first of all, it is a superhero movie, so it kind of has this cop-out. Well, you know, it's Gotham City. It's not real. It's a different world. You know what I mean? In a way, it's a cop-out. Um, it's a Batman film with the Joker. I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm honestly, in no way am I attempting to sound insensitive or anything. But... Seven year hat went by. It is a movie at the end of the day. It's fiction. It's based on a fictional world. So I don't. I never saw much of a problem with that. Even though I heard a lot of rumblings even back then about that aspect. I understand people who were traumatized by the events that were kind of uncomfortable watching. If if that's the extent of it, like watching it and just going, well, you know, I was uncomfortable seeing that because of 9-11, that's fine. But actually going outright to criticize the director for putting that in the movie, I think would be a bit of a stretch. Because at, at, at what point, then when is not too soon? You know what I mean? That was like seven sure. years later. So, you know, at some point it had to be done. Okay. Um, your next point, sir. Uh, my next point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me see. I had like one or two other things I wanted to cover. The other thing, just real quick, was um, you mentioned the Killing Joke, which um, is also one of my favorite Batman stories because I'm a, Alan Moore is one of my idols anyway. But um, I like how they incorporated uh, in, in, uh, elements of that into Dark Knight without uh, being very blatant about it. And that's mainly one uh, one of my favorite things about Heath Ledger's Joker. And there's so much to to mention of that, but um, his multiple origins, which any or all of them may or may not be true and may or may not be false, uh, to the point where he may believe all of them are true or none of them are true, uh, you know, none of that is ever uh, addressed, but uh, that's directly based out of a scene in, in The Killing Joke where towards the end of the, towards the, end of the story, he remarks on it, you know, he goes on this whole thing about trying to guess what happened to Batman to make him the way it is, and he says, something like that happened to me once, uh, you know, sometimes I remember it one way, and sometimes I remember it another way, and, you know, if I, if I have to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. <laughs> and they incorporated yeah. that, yeah, and they incorporated that into the movie in such a great way, and it's, that's the, the second time that he does it with, um, 
with Rachel at the party. That's my favorite scene. Uh, close. It's like tied for that between that and the one at the very end. Uh, it was my favorite Joker scenes in the movie, and um, I, I'm also convinced that's also the scene that won Heath Ledger the Oscar. Uh, if you throw out the, you know, he won it because he died argument. Yeah, I uh, now that you mentioned that, I, I I remember the line, and I remember watching the movie the first time and him doing the. Uh, you want to know how I got these scars? And I think at first my reaction was, oh, for fuck's sake, um, you know, why why do we keep changing that? You know, and I and I was like, I didn't like on the one hand it was like, eh, okay, sure. Um, and on the other hand, take away the fact that he's changing his origin story as the, as the movie goes on and just end the sentence with, you want to know how I got these scars? I defy you to take a knife, put it against someone's cheek and say the line, you want to know how I got these scars and not scare the fuck out of somebody. Okay. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter what you say oh. after that. <laughs> and I think that's the oh. brilliance of it in retrospect is all it is. It never mattered what he said after the, after the word scars. It's, it, the, the the line that triggers the fear is you want to know how I got these scars, um, and and you're right it it made him such a menacing character with just having to do very very little. Samer. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think to be honest, it it kind of adds to his randomness in a way. Uh, you know the fact that he changes his origin stories and. But at the same time, his genius, especially the second time when he changes the story while talking to Rachel, which Ben just uh, talked about, because he, he, he explicitly mentioned the fact that he had a wife, which is probably bullshit, but that's not the point. It would probably scare her more than, you know, oh, my dad gave them to me. The fact that he actually willingly gave himself these scars so that his wife wouldn't feel self-conscious about her looks, and then the fact that she initially in the end she couldn't stand the sight of him i thought i loved that part that story even if it's complete bullshit it's so intense uh the fact that he actually makes makes it up is pretty genius and quite consistent with his character um yeah i i love it i mean the whole you want to know i got these cars why so serious they're probably too they've become iconic at this point which kind of um is testament to the brilliant of the entire performance and the scenes themselves uh i personally especially the one with rachel i completely concur with ben probably among my favorite scenes in the movie i think he also he's choosing the story that most is most likely to affect the person he's harassing at the time. Yeah, that, that's you know, what when, I meant. That's why, that's why I said, you know, he changed it. He talked about a wife in order to creep her out more than he would have, uh, it would have happened had he mentioned it's Don. Right. I would also you know, like, say... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would also say, um, I, I always had this assumption about how he was playing the character and how, how the Joker came off in the movie. That and, it, and it, there's there's evidence of other times that he's done this to support this. That the Joker is just a pathological liar, and every single time he tells that story differently, he believes it every single time. Sure, you know, and that's the thing. It's it doesn't matter. It, it, the 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 point of doing that is to create tension in the scene and to give the character a sense of menace, and it and he does it effectively. 
And if you're trying to portray, um, you know, ma- uh, man crazy, man has no plan, a great way of, one of the great ways of doing that is to keep having them tell the same story but change the details of it so that, you know, it's never the same. And, you're, and, you're, and so every time you hear it, you're like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. You know, he, he doesn't know his own story. Um, you know, simple yet effective. You don't always have – see, this, this is the thing that I think um, – and are you listening, uh, unpaid intern, for whatever Hollywood studio happens to be paying attention to this tonight? You don't always have to create a summer blockbuster full of everything exploding all of the time. You can do things through dialogue, through, you know, through building a relationship between characters that's just as interesting and just as exciting without Michael Bay boom – and that those were those instances of it. The, the the things with the, you know, we talk about this in mixed martial arts. No wasted movement, right? You know, you don't want to. You know, that's also a line used in um, stage plays and such. You don't want to create a lot of wasted movement and distractions. You know, keep the action tight. And that was the thing with the Joker. Um, in a world where you know, post Quentin Tarantino where there's so many movies full of uh, extraneous dialogue, dialogue for the sake of sounding cool, but doesn't really do or anything for the film. The Dark Knight was extraordinary at giving scenes of dialogue to the Joker that were tight to the point, and um, there was no wasted motion. And absolutely sure. badass. <laughs> An absolutely bad um, <laughs> Thank you for filling the silence with that. All right, Benjamin, anything else? One one last thing, and then I promise I'll give you guys your podcast back, but thanks for having me while we're at it. <laughs> sure. And this is something that, you know, you guys can, can spin off, you know, long after I'm gone, but it's basically something else that I, one of the themes that I, is not just a theme in Dark Knight, it's actually also a theme in nearly every Christopher Nolan movie I've ever seen, except for Batman Begins, I guess, and that is, uh, you know, the ending where the theme is the lie is better, and in so, that that comes through in some way in just about everything Christopher Nolan has done. Like I said, the exception of um, of Batman Begins, because it it's a theme in Memento, it's a theme in I believe it's kind of sort of a theme in Insomnia, in The Prestige, definitely in Inception, definitely in The Dark Knight, and and to an extent in Dark Knight Rises, um, there's there's always a falsehood that is held up as being potentially better than the truth could ever be. Um, that's certainly how the Dark Knight ends with basically Batman. And by the way, that's about the that's about the falsiest ending I've ever seen for any Batman story, comic, movie, TV, or otherwise, is Batman basically taking the rap for murders he did not commit in order to preserve the lie that they, you know, that they had to preserve to keep keep the peace in Gotham. Uh, I love that ending to death. I think it actually worked the best. That theme actually works the best in The Dark Knight. Um, here's my take on it. I think it was undercut by the entire Dark Knight Rises movie, being eight years after the incident. Um, because a much more compelling movie would have been... Uh, 
a movie where Batman is being chased relentlessly by the Gotham police, and he's still having to do his thing in a world where Batman is perceived as public enemy number one. I, would, I, I was interested in that story. And the thing of it was is that because of that ending, they teed it up real nice, and then you get to The Dark Knight Rises, and it's eight years later, and he hasn't been Batman since. That's like, what was the fucking point then? You know, if there was never a Dark Knight Rises, I'm fine with that ending. And you're right. It's a very powerful ending. It, it makes Batman, um, you know, Batman is shouldering the sins of Gotham City on his shoulders by himself. And it makes Batman a great martyr character. And I'm fine with all of that. And then they took a big giant shit on it by saying he was hung up on this broad and stop being ba- Gavin Napier of the, uh, of the Casual Heroes and the Whiskey Rebellion, 9.30, Tuesday nights on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Um, <laughs> always got to plug my stuff. Uh, you know, it, was, it refers to the, the Dark Knight Rises as Batman quits. And, well, I think that's a tad unfair. You know, there's a point to it. There's a, people were really agitated by that. And to me, it takes the stuffing right out of the ending of The Dark Knight. Samer? I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I do agree with the gist of what you're saying in general. I don't think it retrospectively diminishes the kind of the impact or the power of uh, the ending of uh, The Dark Knight. Because I'm with Ben. I thought it is extremely ballsy uh, for Batman to do that. And you're your I like your idea better of of a movie where Batman is having to do his thing as be as he's being chased, but at the same time, I actually I might be among the few, but I like the more weary, broken down version of Batman in The Dark Knight Rises. And when he did appear, he was chased by the cops, so it's not like all was forgotten. He was still hated, and it took him to literally save the city from a nuclear explosion for people. Well, uh, in fairness, Bane did kind of reveal the truth too, but he, he redeemed himself in the eyes of the public, even though he didn't really need to redeem himself, which is something even, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, Catwoman even told him that as um, he gave her his bike, I think, to, to escape. And, he goes, you don't owe these people anything anymore. And that's kind of, it's powerful where, you know, Batman, despite everything he's given already, he had more to give. So I thought, in a way, it was consistent with the ending of The Dark Knight, even though, you're right, in some ways, it's, I will say it's consistent, but not immediately follows it, if, if that makes any sense. Sure, no, I, I get what you're saying. Um, Benjamin, if you've got nothing else, I want to thank you for um, throwing some great ideas you threw out there, some great discussion points, and certainly uh, your art is continually appreciated here at the Rattles and Broadcasting uh, Network. Um, so uh, anything else? If not, then we'll uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the show. No, I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me, for giving me this time, and I'm glad you guys enjoy the artwork, and I got some more coming, so you on to look out. Yep, next in two weeks, The Matrix. I'm, I am dying uh, to see what you come up with there. Please, do, please yeah. don't have me and Rob. Please don't have me and Robert like dancing in a Mormon brace at a rave or anything like that. None of that. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> um, 
Don't give me too many ideas. Um, yeah, just quick plug. My my website soulexo.com, uh, facebook.com slash soulexo, uh, Twitter at soulexocomic, and I will be in at New York Comic Con this uh, October. Uh, check out nycomiccon.com for more information. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Benjamin. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, in the interest of time, say anything else worth talking about as far as the Dark Knight goes. I would say Two-Face is extremely underrated in the movie. It's not that he's underrated. He's just got completely outshone, I guess. But he was brilliant. Um, I would say... I don't know who was more annoying, Katie uh, Holmes or Maggie Mc- whatever her family name is. Like, I never get her. McGillan-Hall, there we go. Uh, I was Hang on, let Rachel. me see if this helps. Let me see if this helps. Have you ever, have you ever seen the movie Secretary? Yes, of course. Okay. She's a lot less annoying if you always imagine her with a saddle on. <laughs> I don't actually dislike her in general. I do dislike her in that movie. Uh, I mean, I was I was glad Rachel died. I honestly, I keep whenever I rewatch The Dark Knight. No, all kidding aside, it's not it's not meant to be childish or anything. Every time I watch The Dark Knight, I almost willingly try to make myself feel at least partially bad when she dies, and I can't. Even that scene where she's talking to Harvey Dent as you know. He's trying to free himself and, you know, trying to calm her down. Um, when she thinks she's the one who's going to get saved, even knowing that she's the one who's going to die, you know, uh, after multiple viewings, or at least on second viewing, I still, watching that scene, all I want is, all right, let's get it done with, let's see, you know, Harvey Two-Face's face getting burned and, you know, move on with the rest of the film. I just don't care. Essentially, that's what I'm trying to say. And as a result, it's kind of hard to really get into Bruce Wayne's sorrow uh, subsequently, and more importantly, his his kind of like his long hiatus and sorrow in the Dark Knight Rises. I think that's part of the reason why many people were kind of lukewarm about the whole you know sabbatical that Batman takes. So all this, it's over Rachel, really. I mean, it might not be strictly <laughs> over Rachel. Partially, it's you know also because of Harvey Dent's crime. Who the fuck knows? But the point is, it was just hard to care about Rachel in general and all of her incarnations. Well, both of her incarnations. I think the reaction I have to Rachel dying, and this will be the last thing I say on this, is good. Now we can get back to Batman being Batman. Yeah, yeah. The distractions And not Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Absolutely. She was a distraction and it was gone. That's it. Okay, we have, a, we have roughly 25 minutes left, and I'm going to introduce uh, the next segment by playing a clip here. It's, a little, it's about five minutes. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead, and for people who want to play the home game, including you, Samer, uh, this is from Screen Junkie's hilarious series, Honest Trailers. And there, here's the reason I'm doing this. They're honest trailers of The Dark Knight, which they actually did in conjunction with Red Letter Media. You may know Red Letter Media for their movie review series, Half in the Bag. They also famously do the Mr. Plinkett long-form uh, 
movie breakdowns. Uh, famously, they did one of uh, The Phantom Menace, which is probably what garnered Red Letter Media all their popularity. Um, they, uh, the, both Screen Junkies and Red Letter Media got together and did an honest trailer for The Dark Knight Rises. The points in the trailer are just a litany of discussion points that need to be brought out for this movie. I, I, I don't think I could do a better job than this honest trailer. So we're going to go ahead and um, take a again, Steve Austin, take a pause for the cause, a swig of water for the working man, and he, hear this and have yourself a giggle. But essentially, the points brought up in this honest trailer are everything I want to talk about with this movie uh, for the rest of the show. So here it is. This is the honest trailer for The Dark Knight Rises. From director Christopher Nolan comes the obligatory finale to his Dark Knight trilogy that clearly peaked with the Joker. The Dark Knight Rises, the epic final chapter that will mildly entertain you when you're watching it, but will ultimately anger and disappoint you when you really start to think about it. Revisit the iconic Bruce Wayne, a man who turned the pain of his parents' death into a superhero, but for some reason mopes around for eight years after his sort of girlfriend dies. Suit up as he spends the first 45 minutes hobbling around on canes, getting knocked over easily, growing a gross depression beard, and be told that his body is in complete shambles. Even though in the entire trilogy, he's only clocked in maybe a year and a half as the Batman. But chaos will arrive in the form of Bane, a villain who no one can fully understand. This is Castillo's face. Where I the truth about despair. And I never escaped. How about your schedule, Captain? Prompting Moatman to unretire and plop on a magic knee brace that'll instantly cure him so he can take Bane head on for a few minutes until he's crippled again for a huge chunk of the movie, leaving this mumbling warlord to fulfill his overly complicated plot of terrorizing Gotham for three pointless months, which prompts only one riot and zero gridlock. Seriously, where is everybody? Get ready for a nearly three-hour Batman movie where Batman only shows up for about 33 minutes. And when he does show up, he's so terrible he reveals his secret identity to complete strangers. When we started, why the mask? Protect the people closest to me. Never conducts background checks on his maids or his board members. He uses ineffective gadgets. Stands atop random buildings that are way too dangerous to balance on and waits several hours painting a bridge in gasoline. A story so large in scale, it was partly shot in IMAX, which becomes super distracting when it's constantly changing aspect ratios, and a film so poorly paced, it moves slow for two hours, then randomly zooms through three months of time without telling the audience, forcing this completely rushed ending that'll leave you asking questions. Life. Why are the criminals constantly hitting Batman with their guns instead of shooting him? Why would the CIA let masked men onto their plane without checking who they were first? How did Bane know about the existence and the exact location of Batman's secret armory, especially after Lucius said it was off the books? And why has no one stumbled upon his huge-ass airplane? How did Bane and his henchmen hide motorcycles inside the stock exchange? 
How is it possible that Bruce Wayne completely healed his broken back in less than three months? Didn't he need a doctor? How did Batman get from the hole in the middle of nowhere into the quarantine Gotham without any money or equipment? Why would they send the entire Gotham City police force into the sewers all at the exact same time? If Tamalor knew he was Batman, why did she let him wander off with Lucius? Why didn't she just kill him when she had the chance? In fact, why didn't she just detonate the bomb right then? And why does Batman talk to Catwoman in his Batman voice when she knows he's Bruce Wayne? How come everybody in Gotham could figure out that Bruce Wayne was Batman except for Commissioner Gordon? Even the character with Down Syndrome, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, figured it out. Why did Bruce Wayne show up in a French cafe after being pronounced dead? Think that would have attracted the attention of the media. How did Batman eject and swim nine miles to survive if he only had five seconds left on the bomb? Didn't anyone in Gotham think it was weird that Batman and Bruce Wayne both died on the exact same day? Bruce Wayne was Batman? Starry, the cast of Inception. All right, <laughs> the rest of it is not... Uh, so you, you get a lot of points there uh, that, that need discussion. First, let me. First of all, I, real quick, what did you think of the honest trailer? It's it's pretty funny. It, <laughs> it it's uh, it obviously you know I've heard pretty much every single point they just made in in one form or another. Uh, it's it's actually pretty ingenious the way they've kind of lined them up all together. Though they really hit on all the flaws in the film, a film I actually love, by the way. In spite of these flaws, I have a weird, very odd relationship with The Dark Knight Rises. Well, that line, um, and I was actually talking about Benjamin about this before the, uh, before the show, that line about a movie that will entertain you but will ultimately anger you if you think about it, sums up my opinion of The Dark Knight Rises. I, I saw the midnight showing of this. I actually watched the entire trilogy. I went to the movie theater and did one of those marathons that led into an early showing of the movie. And I remember at the end of it, I was like, that was great. I was really entertained by that. That was a, that was a very, that was a great cinematic experience. Right? You know, it was a, it was a visual, um, a, a visually exciting movie. And then I saw the movie. Then I saw it again, and I saw you know I saw it a few more times over the you know over the course of it being on video or uh, or cable. And the more I watched it, and the more I read reviews of it, you know, it confused Matthew or Red Letter Media, or in this case, Honest Trailers. I was like, yeah, this movie makes no fucking sense at all. <laughs> I can I'm willing to forgive some of the things like the magic knee brace and all of that. What I'm not willing to forgive is um, one, the the cutting of Bane's, uh, Bane's knees at the end of the movie by making the real villain, Talion Al Shire. Oh, uh, God. Talion Al Ghul, rather. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, just name them and I'll comment on that expression because I, I do want to talk about Bane in general and then, you know, leading up to the ending. Well, let, let me say this. Um... This was the the source material on this. The, the inspiration was the storyline Nightfall, where after months and months of Batman sort of pushing himself to the physical brink of of destruction, uh, Bane lets loose all the criminals in Arkham Asylum, and you know, and, and when what seemingly is a one long weekend, um, 
<laughs> uh, sorry, I just got a, I just got a warning from Robert Winfrey to watch myself of my comments about Bane. Um, but uh, Nightfall, uh, one long weekend. Batman, who has already um, physically pushed himself beyond the limits, is running around Gotham trying to put all these animals back in their cage. And at the end of it, where he's just mentally and physically uh, at his wit's end, Bane walks out of the shadows, beats the shit out of him, and breaks his back. Um, it's one of the most iconic images in the history of comic books. You know, the, the flack uh, of um, Bane doing a backbreaker on, uh, on Batman, which then led into two more volumes of uh, Nightfall featuring... Azrael as the um, you know bat as a killer Batman, and then eventually Nightwing taking over the role once he's defeated. But so it, it took that it took element of the Savage Land where an earthquake separates Gotham City from the rest of the known universe, and uh, Gotham sort of has to exist on its own with no help from anyone. Uh, so there's elements of that, and the dark and the the Dark Knight Returns. You know the graphic novel that started it all. Um, you know Batman's been gone for uh, for decades. He's an old man now, and he kind of comes out of retirement to fight the mutants who have taken over Gotham. And then he, then the mutants convert to the sons of Batman, which you saw a little bit of that in The Dark Knight. Um, this then leads to the big fight with Superman, who was working for Ronald Reagan at the time. And, you know, it ends with uh, seemingly Batman dying, but he's actually really alive, and he's got a, you know underground resistance going on. So there's, there's elements of The Dark Knight Returns, Nightfall, and, Sa- and uh, Savage Land all kind of combined into this movie. My, I, my, my biggest problem was exactly that. They took all of those things and they wanted to make sure they were in the movie, and it didn't seem... Sorry, No Man's Land, not Savage Land. Um, and it didn't seem to matter if none of the pieces fit together. You know, creating a situation where... And, and I really want to talk about this. This is coming in the wake of the United States economic. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how much you know about this being uh, Canadian and all. Um, how, how much of this affected you, or if you paid attention to it? But in 2008, when this, when, when we had the housing bubble crash here in the United States, there was a lot. Uh, one of the big themes in the air was the sense of uh, the rich people having too much and the poor people having too little. And that line, there's a storm coming and you'll all wonder how you got to be so fat, Kim comes, it, it is wrested right out of that theme, right out of that feeling that America just seemed to be getting, the little guy kept being fucked over by the fat cats in the United States. And this is by no means a political rant. I am citing a theme of the time and, a, and an event that actually happened. Um, that's how people felt. And so it was like they took that and said, okay, that's what we want to be the theme of this movie, and then they don't give you really anything. You know, you never really see how, you know, they, they talk about the Dent Act and how they put all of these criminals in Blackgate Prison. Okay, except that, were, was it because the police force became, you know, like the Ferguson, Missouri police force? Were they being excessive or were they doing their job and they really put mafia guys behind bars? See, none of that is ever really fleshed out. And so there's all, there's all this great dialogue that's being uttered, and there's nothing to back it up. There's no scenes of anything that, that, that shows you that the little guy is being screwed. So when Bane says, Gotham is yours, do what you please, the question has to be asked, why? 
<laughs> what is so bad about the world we're living in right now that you felt this was necessary for us to go crazy? And then they show you one riot scene, one. And then as people, <laughs> and then as people uh, you know, have rightly pointed out, we're, we're three months into uh, Bane's Gotham, and <laughs> there's, the, the streets are clean, there's no cars anywhere. It's like, what the fuck is going on? You know, what is going on in this city? So I feel like they just tried to cram so much into this movie um, and so many elements of all of these different uh, pieces of source material that it, it becomes a cluttered mess. And then, as I said, they cut the whole thing uh, to pieces by then shifting the main villain from Bane to Talia al Ghul, which made me want to up and walk out of the theater at one point. As soon as she was just like, I am the daughter of Ra's al Ghul, and it was my secret plot all along to avenge my father and blow the fuck out of Gotham, I'm like, none of that other stuff then was important. You, you, you've been telling me this whole movie that this was about, uh, this was about poverty and richness, and now it's not anymore. Now it's a revenge tale. And I, I throw my hands up and say, Samer, what the hell? All right. If I had two to three hours to kill, and I had to fill them by watching one movie from the Dark Knight trilogy, I would choose this one. However... Objectively speaking, it is by far the most flawed of the bunch, making it probably the worst movie of the bunch. But as far as pure enjoyment goes, if, if you stop thinking, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I, I, I don't even mind the pacing. I love the beginning. You know, another great introduction scene of the cool bad guy. Obviously, if you think for a second, it wouldn't make any sense that the CIA would not check these guys first before, you know, <laughs> placing bags on their heads for some reason. So, I mean, it's basically a bunch of strangers on a CIA plane. That makes no sense. But, you know, the scene itself is awesome. The fire rises for some reason, whatever that means. It sounds cool. Everything is cool. I love Bane. I loved how they... Obviously, you know, again... Going back to the source material, Bane is more than about just muscle. He is intellectually almost Batman's equal. They don't actually focus on that too much in this movie. Never mind the fact that by the end they completely butcher Bane with the reveal. But that's the thing. Throughout the film, what on first viewing, what I what what really captured my mind was kind of the mystique surrounding Bane. He's this mystery villain that nobody in the film had any idea about. You know, Alfred got a, some got Bruce Wayne some information about him before he started bawling his eyes out for no reason. But, <laughs> you know, uh, you still, you know, there, he had that kind of, like, mystery surrounding him. You know, what is his origin? And then, obviously, when when Bruce Wayne is thrown into the pit, which is an awesome sequence, just like visually, you know, him working back into shape, even though if a bone is sticking out of your bag, that's, you know, probably not very feasible. But whatever, I'm, I'm willing to, honestly, everything that Bruce Wayne overcomes as far as, like, you know, physical torment and pain, I'm willing to forgive. You know, he's Batman, whatever. I, I, can, I can get past that. 
But when when that old guy tells him the story of how Bane escapes the pit, it makes you feel like Bane, again, there's that word again, like, oh, what a badass. Because part of the reason, throughout the film, part of the reason why we're supposed to be intimidated by Bane is he's the one villain who's besting Batman physically. You know, Joker was able to mindfuck him, for lack of a better term, um, but Bane messed him physically. You know, he broke his back in the film. And even before that encounter, which again was so well made, just pure, from pure cinematic point of view, you know, Alfred warns Batman that you know you're not what you once were. You don't you don't want to go with him toe to toe. Paraphrasing here, of course. And in the end, there's that you know supposedly climactic fight scene with Bane. And I'm I'm certainly focusing on the Bane storyline here because again you mentioned that there are so many storylines in the film, so many different plot points that it gets confusing. But supposedly Bane is the one that's driving everything, so that's what I'm focusing on. And then you have the big reveal that complete, completely ruins everything. The moment Bane looks at Batman and goes, "But I never escaped the pit," I was like, "What? That really ruins everything." Just never mind the fact that. <laughs> Talia then stops him. Just Bane admitting that he never actually escaped the pit kind of ruins when it for we, me. Uh, when we um, talked about uh, Batman and Robin, I used the name uh, mockingly, you know, the, and then they, because Warner Brothers forced them to include Bane in the story, they made Bane into uh, Poison Ivy's henchman, Jojo the Monkey Boy. And one of the great things about The Dark Knight Rises in theory was that they were going to make up for that. This was, this was the uh, apology for making Bane into Jojo the Monkey Boy. And for 99.9% of this movie, he's, you know, you know the stuff about why are you breaking Gotham down for no good reason kind of thing. Um, that aside, he's a great villain. Um, you know, I liked the mask. Uh, I liked everything that he did. The, the fight scene, I promised Robert Winfrey I would mention this. The fight scene where he breaks Batman's back is virtually perfect in terms of making him look so much more superior to Batman. You know, I was born, you know, the shadows betray you. I was born in them, that sort of thing. It isn't just the fighting. This isn't just fight, 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 fight. You know, this isn't the lightsaber duel between Ben, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker. The, the, you know, there was a lot going on in that scene. And that's what made it so good. Um, and then, at, in the last few minutes of the movie, they take this great intellectual, physical beast of a character and turned him back into Jojo the Monkey Boy. He was essentially a henchman carrying out the vision of Talia al Ghul. And I was like, why does fucking Hollywood hate Bane? What, what was that really necessary? <laughs> Jesus Christ! I mean, it it made that moment there made me realize that the film peaked earlier. The film peaked to me with Bruce Wayne escaping the pit. That was a great sequence. Again, see that's the thing about this movie. If you isolate every scene, all of them are great. 
honestly, I'm not. I'm not saying that in, in a snarky way. Every single scene taken in isolation is phenomenal, both visually, from a cinematic point of view, dialogue-wise. Everything Bane says is so cool. You just want to walk around and just, for some reason, just read Bane quotes. You know. <laughs> but all, you know. And this the, gives the you power over me. Yeah, theatricality <laughs> and deception, you know, allies for the uninitiated, uninitiated or whatever, but we are initiated. Everything he says is cool, even if it doesn't make sense. The, the For lack of a better word, the promos he cut, you know, the national anthem scene, uh, the football scene, and then the explosion. It's visually fantastic, even his remark of, you know, what a lovely, lovely voice. But it's a lot... What rewatching this movie, and again, I I always enjoy it. I love it in in a sort of I don't want to say guilty pleasure because it's still a very good film, obviously. But I willingly stop myself from being irritated by its flaws. But now that we're objectively analyzing it, it it the film does feel disoriented in a way. Like take Bruce Wayne. First of all, is he does he like Miranda Tate? Does he like you know Catwoman? Who? Come on. First of all, this whole you know emotional rapport with Miranda Tate out of the blue, it's kind of rushed. I mean, the film is already long, yet it feels rushed. That's not that's not a good sign. A lot of it feels rushed as far as like you know storyline goes. Um, one of the other things that bother me about it is the plot itself. Doesn't it seem obviously it does. It's, or a rhetorical question, but it seems needlessly complex. It you, you really could have messed up Gotham far sooner. Like, why does he? I mean, the point of telling them that one of them actually has the detonator. It it just it's confusing at first. I honestly had to rewatch the film to fully grasp the the plot. It's well, that that's the thing. It was like. You know, you have to imagine a writer's table, and um, let me let me take this time to say we have about three minutes left. We have to go over. There's too much to discuss. So we have, we have just touched the, the the tip of this thing. So we're going to go a little bit over here. Um, come back in about half an hour, forty five minutes, and we should be done. And this should be wrapped up and in the archives to hear the final parts of the discussion and all the plugs and whatnot. Um, the uh, if you, real quick, in case people don't get it. Uh, you, if you're wanting to continue to listen to Sam Riccati, he's on uh, the Zonka Broadcasting Network. He does a podcast with Jer- Jeremy Lambert uh, called Leave the Memories Alone, though you guys haven't done one seems like a while. Um, but that's where you can find Sam Riccati. He's also on Twitter at Sam Riccati, uh 88 um, So, again, we're gonna, the show is going to go dead in about two minutes, and, um, and we're going to keep talking about The Dark Knight Rises. That being said, you have to imagine a writer's table where they're like, okay, here, here's what we want to create. Bane uh, create, you know, traps the police in the sewers and uh, anarchy runs wild through Gotham. The, the little man finally has his revenge against the fat cats. Okay, except that if he did that, the National Guard would, be, would, would run in there and fucking shoot everybody. <laughs> you're not going to that's never going to happen okay well what if he held Gotham hostage with a nuclear bomb uh sure <laughs> okay that that would keep people out I guess um but eventually 
Heat have to give up the bomb. They can't. This can't go on forever. Okay, well, we'll put a timer on the bomb. We'll say three months. Uh, oh, it seems a little convoluted, but okay. And so now we're going to say that Bane created this utopia where the little man could get revenge against the fat cat for three months before ultimately destroying Gotham. Why? Because he's in the League of Shadows, that's why. And he's carrying out Ra's al Ghul's plan. And, um, and you know what? We'll have it be a big reveal where it's Talia al Ghul whose plan was this all along. <laughs> you know, that's how I'm imagining this conversation went as they were trying to put this script together. It's like it starts with this really great idea, but, isn't, but, but you can't pull it off. There was no way to pull off what they were trying to do uh, in Gotham without physically removing Gotham from the rest of the planet. So they kept creating all of these sort of convoluted ideas to, make it, to, to force it to happen, and it, that's the movie that we got, unfortunately. I think if, um, if they didn't try to do that and just made you accept the fact that Gotham fell into fucking anarchy under, uh, under Bane and the rest of the United States just, <laughs> lots of luck, good night. Um, it might have made for a tighter movie, but unfortunately, that's the, you know, they, they tried to work out some of the details that didn't make any sense, and instead we got a convoluted mess. Yeah, I think, I think the main issue with the film strictly revolves around the plot. As I said, everything else is, is even there's not a single performance that makes you go, eh. Even Bane, I mean, it's only unfair, it's it's only underwhelming if you compare him to the Joker because a lot of people did that. But otherwise, I thought he was a phenomenal villain. Tom Hardy's performance was great as Bane. Um, so going past that. The problem is having the plot as the main problem is a pretty big deal, especially when it's contrived, it's confusing. And even at first when I watched it, I thought, well, so was this a suicide plan? Was was the bomb supposed to detonate as Bane and Talia were still in the city? I mean, how does this work exactly? And part of the, it's, you know, you could forgive the plot, or at least, well, not forgive, but... Maybe you can willingly turn a blind eye to a lot of what's going on in the plot if they were at least consistent in in the way the events unfolded. But not really. They seemed like they had a bunch of themes, just stuck them all together. And in the end, even before the big reveal or the, the, the plot twist, you still were confused as to what exactly Bane wants then. Um, right. Is it a personal vendetta against Batman? Is it a vendetta against Gotham because of the whole League of Shadows connection? And I mean, so what's the point of... Is he, is he just all about giving citizens false hopes then? Like, all of them were stuck together, and sure, in a way, it makes him complex, but none of it seemed to have a purpose, and not in a good way, not in the Joker kind of, oh, what he's doing is random without a real purpose, he just wants chaos kind of way. It seemed more like the writers don't really have a clear idea kind of lack of purpose. One of the things we do on this show is if if we're going to tear something down, you have to kind of offer up something to make it better, and here's my vision of how they could have fixed this. Gotham under Bane needed to look like when Biff ran um, Hill Valley in Back to the Future 2. 
we needed to cut away from Gotham under Bane, you know, leave everything the way that it was, right? Um, Batman is gone. He's, you know, his back is broken. Um, uh, Bane, you know, Bane, the, the police are at a commission. They're in the sewer or whatever. Um, and Bane says, Gotham is yours. You know, take, you know, take what you need to. Uh, take take back this you know and then you know lets ev- lets everyone out of Blackgate Prison. Um, they they should have had an Arkham Asylum. <laughs> that was the other thing that was really missing from this. Even if they didn't have colorful criminals running around, it would have been fun to see not just thugs running around the city, but you know lots of like schizophrenics and and whatnot running around as well. Um, in any case, what I would have liked to have seen is you know you cut away. And you know, now you have Bruce's story in the, in the pit, and you come back. When, when you come back, there's scenes of there's still anarchy in the streets. King Bane sits over a kingdom of chaos. You know, there's bodies in the street. There's graffiti everywhere. The city the, the city should have resembled Kurt Russell's Escape from New York. Okay, that would have then. You know, given I think some uh, some heft to Batman needing to come back and save the city, because what we got was, and and I, this is one of the weaknesses of the Dark Knight Rises, is you know, one of the, what uh, what you know Samer had said, uh, which was you don't really know what it was he was trying to accomplish here. I mean, he says in the movie, we're going to give them, you know, uh, we're going to give them a moment here of, uh, of gluttony and, and chaos, and then I'm going to blow them up. Like, well, why don't you just blow them up then? <laughs> what are you waiting for? The whole thing with the, with the nuclear bomb, you know, was literally like a plot device just, you know, just so you could create this universe where chaos reigns and the greater United States government doesn't get involved. Um, it, you know, it almost would have made more sense, you know, for, for, for them to say, you know, forgetting about a nuclear bomb would have been, you know, like a weak president trying to, like, negotiate with Bain over, over months or something like that. It would have been at least slightly more believable. More, I would have accepted it. But... Um, yeah, one of the one of the real failures of the Dark Knight Rises was they didn't they didn't significantly show Gotham descending into utter madness, and that essentially uh, just undercut the entire uh, Bane, Bane's entire plot. Uh, th- that was one of my frustrations with it. Um, all right, we have momentarily lost Samer here. So I'm going to go ahead and play a little Batman music and see if I can get him back. Pardon me, we shall take a momentary break. We'll be back in a moment.
too careful with all those weirdos around. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Hamill. Okay, um, so Samer will not be able to join us for the remainder of the show. Um, he had to re- he had to disconnect, and uh, because of the way Block Talk Radio works, uh, he can't come back on the show now. The, sh- the show is still recording. Um, there's usually an hour of post-live recording time that Block Talk Radio allots you, so, so that you're not just cut off. Um, but it doesn't allow people to call back in. So if he had stayed on into the the after hour, then he'd be fine. But once he got disconnected, that's it. The, the door sort of shut behind him, and he can't get back on again. Uh, he sends his regrets. He had a great time on the show. He is welcome back anytime. Uh, if there's another franchise that he's particularly passionate about that he wants to come on and discuss, the door will always be open to him. He was a great guest to have on. Love talking movies with him and hope to do so again in the future. You can, uh, again, find Sam Riccati's, uh co-hosted podcast with Jeremy Lambert. Leave the memories alone on the Zonka, Broadcast, uh, Zonka Broadcasting Network right here on Blog Talk Radio, on Stitcher, and iTunes. Uh, you can also follow Samer on Twitter at SamerCotty88. That's uh, S-A-M-E-R. K-A-D-I-88. All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring this to a close since we no longer have a guest. Uh, Suffice it to say that uh, all of the issues that were brought up in the Honors trailer, plus uh, some of the stuff that we've discussed here, I I agree with Seymour. Visually, it's a stunning movie. One of my favorite parts is, you know, is when the football field is blowing up behind the one football player. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of great dialogue, even if some of it was a little nonsensical. Uh, I thought Tom Hardy's performance as Bane was fine. Uh, Michael Caine drove me nuts as Alfred. Again, I, I think he turns into a whiny hag by, by the end of the film. Um, and the and the whole premise that 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 Batman sort of gave Bruce Wayne gave up being Batman for eight years, seemingly mostly because he was hung up on Rachel, and that he believed that he and Rachel would still be together, um, had the Joker not blowed her up, uh, even though she wrote him a letter saying that he never got a chance to read that she had chosen Harvey, she would always choose Harvey and that they were never going to be together, even if he stopped being Batman. That drove me insane. I hated it. Um, I just, you know, to, the, to anyone writing superhero movies, stop making the love interest the sole so focal point of the superhero's life. There, there, there are more to human beings than I did it all for love. Ugh. Anywho. Um, yeah, the, the Dark Knight Rises... Is a, is a pretty schizophrenic movie that doesn't seem to know what it wants to be. Um, it's entertaining. It's visually stunning. The performances are great for the most part. Uh, the look of the movie is great. My, other, my only other complaint is the gravelly Christian Bane performance of Batman made sense in the first two movies. By the third one, it made no sense. Okay, there's a scene, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before I close up, 
<laughs> to me, this sums up the whole movie. There's a scene on a rooftop where Batman is talking to Catwoman in his gravelly, I have cancer voice, and he turns away, turns back, and she's gone. And he says, oh, I, that's what that feels like. Here's the problem. He says it in the Batman voice to himself. Do, do, do screenwriters in the middle of a franchise just get exhausted? I mean, there were several years in between each movie. It wasn't like they were trapped in a room with their fingernails growing, you know, handcuffed to a fucking typewriter. My God, does anyone, does anyone actually think about what they were writing when they wrote The Dark Knight Rises? My goodness. Um, you know, tighten the movie up. Cut Talia al Ghul out of the movie entirely. Uh, just cut cut the character out and, you know, and somehow create a situation where Bane uh, creates, you know, you don't even have to get rid of the cops. Just make the cops outgunned. It's like if you release every criminal on Blackgate Prison and all the nuts in Arkham Asylum and you have a bunch of your own guys running around, the cops are going to be outgunned. That's enough. You know, have, a, have Bane with his, you know, with his terrorists, have a couple of tanks uh, surrounding Gotham shooting any National Guard that tries to get in there. And I think you have the makings of what they were trying to get accomplished with this movie. Without the, the overarching plot of this was the ultimate revenge of the League of Shadows. And I know some people, you know, Samer had alluded to it before, you know, kind of the movie ends where it begins, where uh, we're right back to the League of Shadows again. But I actually thought that took away from the movie. I thought, you know, Bane, Bane's point, the Joker's point in The Dark Knight was, you people are monsters uh, behind your masks, and I'm going to prove it. The, the point of The Dark Knight Rises was Bane, um, it was Bane was Robin Hood, essentially, an evil Robin Hood. It was, um, you know, you, you've built this uh, castle on a cloud. You, you, you've built this pristine silver tower uh, of of goodness on a lie and I'm going to tear it down and expose the lie. Okay, great. You know, again, after the, the crash of 2008, it's a movie I think we all would have really enjoyed, but that should have been the end of it. It just should have been, I will bring Gotham down back where it belongs in the muck and mire because that is the truth of this city. And then Batman has to come back and prove, no, the city is good you know, whatever. I, it's, uh, it, it, this was one of those things where it, it, The Dark Knight Rises had a hard time getting out of its own way. And that ultimately is the fault of uh, what's wrong with the movie. All right. Uh, I want to get, once again, thank Samer Khadi for coming on. Um, it's unfortunate he got cut off there at the end, but what would the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network be without technical difficulties? So such is life. Um, in two weeks, Robert Winfrey will be on The Long Road to Ruin, and we will be breaking down yet another trilogy which started off strong and dove into the ditch headfirst, splattering its brain all over the concrete, The Matrix. Long scenes of erotic dancing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. 
I'm actually excited to talk about The Matrix, not because I get to rewatch the movies again, because who cares about that, but I, I'm, I'm very fascinated by the documentaries about the philosophy behind it, because I know there was so much uh, philosophy being bantered, bandied about in the second and third movie, and uh, I would love to hear what the point of all of it was. So I'm, I'm, I've got the Blu-rays sitting on my desk, and I'm anxious to not necessarily watch the movies, but watch the documentaries sort of explaining what the fuck it is I'm supposed to be watching. So two weeks, 9 o'clock, Long Road to Ruin, here on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network, The Matrix Trilogy, featuring uh, guest host and Rattle Legend Broadcasting Vice President <laughs> Robert Winfrey, host of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy and the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show. Um, just quick, go through the schedule here. Uh, as I said, Sunday nights is Robert Winfrey's show. Uh, Mondays, uh, there will be a new show starting fairly soon. Uh, Jesse Starcher, uh, who was once the Rattle Legend Broadcasting superfan, has now uh, become a podcaster in his own right, and he's going to be starting up a comic book podcast. So be on the lookout for that. That will be Monday nights for those of you not interested in watching wrestling. Uh, Tuesday nights is the Whiskey Rebellion, a joint production of the Rattle Legend Broadcasting uh, Network and the Casual Heroes. Chris Evans, Gavin Napier, and uh, those that deigned to call in discuss the news of the day. Our last show, we talked about Ray Rice and a number of other issues going on. That's 9.30 Tuesday nights. Wednesday night is From the Chief Seats with Jason Teasley, again, Jesse Starcher, and when he's not helping Mexicans cross the border illegally, uh, Robert Cooper. Speaking of Robert Cooper, a week from tonight, next Thursday, uh, is the Metal Hammer of Doom podcast. Robert Cooper and I bring you the latest and greatest in metal reviews. We will be tackling the latest, re- latest album from Scottish pirate metal band, Ailstorm. Not Hailstorm with an H. Ailstorm. A-L-E. Beer. Mead. Ailstorm. The latest Ailstorm record is out and available for you to listen to, and we will review it for your listening pleasure. It'll be fantastic. Uh, Again, Friday nights is Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, and uh, that's it. For those of you interested in MMA and what Robert Winfrey is doing, uh, this Saturday night is Arlovsky versus Bigfoot in Brazil, and that'll be on Fight Pass uh, exclusively. All right, so for Shane McCarty and the Zonka Broadcasting Network, I am the mandated reporter, Mr. Mark Radledge. This has been the Long Road to Ruin review of the Dark Knight trilogy. Once again, here is Scar Voovy and the Epitone. Mm-hmm.